Thanks, Dad. So great to be with everyone this morning. This is my first time uh, back in a church service uh, since we've been locked down, so it's very special for us. It's very weird for my kids. Ezra's probably missed more Sundays than he's been to. We're praying for him. But if he grows up and he's off the rails, you know why. You know, I've been loving our, um, our preaching uh, themes that we've been, we've been doing and, um, you know, this whole year being about this new kingdom and, and what that looks like and uh, more recently we've been talking about this new me and, and uh, you know, what it means for us as we walk with the Holy Spirit and how He changes us and, and you know, the, the new creation that we are, as the Bible calls us, a new creation. And uh, recently we've been talking about um, being a kingdom of priests and uh, I love this because uh, the kingdom of priests thing is, um, has always been a theme I've loved in the Bible because it, it, it's such a rich term. Like it's got so much meaning to it and it's got so much, uh, you know, there's so much behind what being a priest means. And so therefore being a kingdom of priests or, or, or a special, a nation of priests is, is so important. And so this morning I wanted to read to you uh, out of a verse that's called the High Priestly Prayer. That's what it's been nicknamed. Um, and some people call it the true Lord's Prayer because you all know the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but, but this is actually a prayer that Jesus prays. And it's such a significant verse because I think it's the greatest insight into the relationship between Jesus and the Father that we're given anywhere in Scripture. And I'll explain why in a second, but it's found in John chapter 17. So if you want to find that, feel free to pull that out. John chapter 17. It's the whole chapter. And it's all super important. So this isn't the only time we hear Jesus pray. You know, we hear the Lord's Prayer. He teaches the disciples how to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? You know that one? Uh, we, we know He prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, Lord, uh, if, if you could take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will. So we know that one. Uh, but this one is huge. I mean, there's 26 verses of Jesus praying to the Father, and it's before He's crucified. In fact, it's right before He's crucified. And it kind of follows on from, everybody here knows the, uh, the I am the vine. You, you, you guys know that, that whole passage of Scripture. The reason why that one's so significant and why it's so significant that this follows on from that is because chapter 14 all the way through to 16 is this sermon that Jesus is preaching, basically. And this sermon that Jesus is preaching is turning the world upside down for his disciples. And we read it now and we're like, oh, that's cool. Or the awesome metaphor, the vine. But he's turning the world upside down. And I mean it. I am the vine. You know what Jesus is saying there? I'm the true Israel. Think about this. All right, this is at the pinnacle of like Jesus is about to be crucified. So obviously the Jews are not fans of Jesus right now. And he comes out and goes, well, I'm the true vine. You know, throughout the Old Testament, the 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 Israelites and, and the Jewish people were referred to as the vine or God's vine. And so when Jesus goes, I am the vine, wow, what a significant statement to say, hey, the, the true Israel, the true kingdom, that's me. And so that's, that's how he begins his sermon and he's turning the world upside down for his disciples. And then he's, in chapter, I think it's 16, he says to them, uh, you know, the world is going to hate you because they hated me. And if you're anything like me, which you should be if you follow me, then they're going to hate you too. And he, and he, go, and he kind of goes, and that's how you'll know that, that you're a part of me is if they hate you. I mean, that, gee, that's a significant promise, isn't it? 
And this is the guy that's about to go and die. So, so this, this is a really upside down looking kingdom so far, right? So this guy's like, hey, I'm about to go. I'm going to send someone. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to be a helper. Uh, but everyone's going to hate you. Don't worry. And, uh, and then he goes and dies and doesn't just die. He dies such a shameful death. I mean, a crucifixion wasn't just like another way to die or it wasn't like a, a public execution. It wasn't just that. It, it wasn't uh, like getting the death penalty these days. It was like shame upon shame. Like it was like the lowest of the lows. Like th- that is reserved for really just ugh people, right? That the Roman Empire just did not care about. So this is the guy who dies like this that sets up this new kingdom. And it's basically functions as the beginning or as the fulfilment of Christ's priestly duties. Now that's really significant because if Christ is fulfilling his priestly duties, who takes up the role of priest? We do. His people. He says, he, he says I'm passing it on to you. The job's now yours. I'm going to go. So who takes on the, the priestly duties? It's us. You see, and so what happens here is is Jesus prays in chapter 17 and it's basically this big long prayer about, you know, God, would you glorify me so that I can glorify you? And then he just prays, he prays for us. I'll I'll go into that in a second. He prays for his disciples first and he prays for actually us, you and me. And then what does he do? He finishes the priestly duties and there is a sacrifice and it's him. It's the atonement for the people of God. But it was the atonement of all atonements. So this is, this is kind of the context of chapter 17, right? So you can tell there's, there's some emotion involved. It's such a significant moment. So let's go in verse 1, and I'm going to jump around a little bit because I don't want to read all 26 verses for you, but I really encourage you to do that. In verse 1, it says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, these words are the, the sermon he just preached, the vine and the you know, people are going to hate you and all that kind of thing. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I mean, what, what, a, what a great insight to this relationship between the Son and the Father. Isn't this cool? Don't you just feel like you're a fly on the wall of like this meeting that God the Father and God the Son are having? And, and it's just so awesome that John's written this down for us to be able to witness. But there's four times that Jesus prays in this prayer the exact same thing. Four times, once for his disciples and three times for us. And so I want to talk about that today because it's so significant if in a prayer that Jesus knows is being recorded so that the future people can hear it, it's so significant that Jesus, one of his last prayers to his father before he goes home to see him, he prays this thing four times. There's a rule in the Bible, an unspoken rule. And when you're reading the Bible, this is a great tip for you. If something's repeated, it's important. It was so expensive to write things down back when the Bible was written. 
So if someone's writing it down, it's important in the first place. That's why the Bible is just important in general. But if someone's writing it down two, three, four times, it's really important. And they're like, hey, listen to this because I've written it down four times for you. So Jesus prays this thing four times. Okay, so here's the first time it appears in verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. He's talking about his disciples here because he's referring to them. They're right in front of him. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. That's the first time Jesus prays this, that they may be one, even as we are one. I mean, think of the significance there, right? They are the same. They're the same being. They're both God. They're different persons of the Godhead, but they're both God. That they would be one, even as we are one. I mean, think about the disciples are witnessing this, right? And that they are recalling all the times Jesus would sneak out late at night or early in the morning and go away to pray to be with his Father. And he says, hey, would they just be one as much as we are one? I mean, what a prayer to pray, right? I mean, what powerful words to say from Jesus to say, hey, Father, even like we're one. We're, we're old, I, I, he's, he's even said, I wouldn't do anything that I don't see the Father first doing. And, and he starts his day by just praying and often he'd be alone and, and he'd send crowds away. I mean, revival's happening around him and he's sending them away so that he can go spend time with the Father. Even as we are one, would they be one? Wow. And then we find it uh, all the way down in, in verse 21. So in verse 20, it, this significant shift happens in his prayer. And it's this. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Okay, I don't ask for just the disciples, just for these guys, but for every single believer who believes what they speak. That's you and me. That's us. That's the whole church body. And then he prays three more times. Are you ready? Verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. That's the third time. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me and loved them even as you loved me. Perfectly one. Wow. This is the heart of Jesus, right? I mean, this is, this is God's prayer to God. I mean, how more important could you get? Has there ever been a more important prayer ever written down? I don't think so. And he says that they would be perfectly one. He prays that his disciples would be one, but three times he prays for us. Three times he prays for Strong Nation Church and the church around the globe. And he says that they would be one, perfectly one as we are one. I think Jesus is making a point. This morning, I, uh, I've titled my sermon, United as One. Because I think God has intended our church to be united as one. And I want to talk this morning about what does that mean? Because I know there's been a lot of talk about unity. There's been a lot of talk about, uh, you know, being 
there's lots of arguments going on and lots of division in society and all that kind of thing. And so we talk about how important unity is. And, you know, when you see a church that doesn't have unity, it's like it's a big disappointment to God. And so I want to talk about what does this unity mean and, and what does it look like and why is it important and why did Jesus pray it four times? But let's pray first that uh, these would be God's words and not just mine. Lord, I just thank you so much that you prayed for us. God, that you took time before everything happened, before the crucifixion, and you, you made sure that it was written down for us to see that you'd want us to be one. God, I just pray that you would help us to embody that. You'd help us to embody the church that you've always seen. And God, I pray this morning as, as I preach from your word, I pray, God, that it would uh, go into the hearts of everyone that hears, Lord, and that you would speak to them directly. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Now, of course, if you've been in church long enough, you know, you know that we are not perfectly one. I mean, like we should be, but like things come up, right? And, and things happen in church and divisions happen and splits happen and arguments happen and, and you just get at each other's throats and, and, uh, and it's just inevitable because we're all people, right? Uh, and so I thought it would be great for me to read to you 20 of the funniest things that I've, that I've found that churches have had arguments about. Are you ready for those? So there was an argument over the appropriate length of a worship leader's beard. I didn't say uh, senior pastor's beard because I thought that was a bit close to home. And I'm pretty sure there's a scripture indicating somewhere that it can't be more than like 15 centimetres longer than the senior pastor's beard. I don't know. Uh, there was a fight over whether or not to build a children's playground or a cemetery. Very similar. I'm hoping they didn't just kill two birds with one stone. Uh, a, a deacon accused another deacon of sending an anonymous letter, which, which was settled in the car park after the service. Um, very exciting. There was, a, there was a church dispute over to whether install restroom stall dividers in the women's restrooms. I don't know who opposed it. I really don't. Uh, there was a church argument and then a whole church vote. The whole church voted as to whether they should remove the clock from an auditorium. Uh, I'm sure you guys probably wouldn't want it removed because I just keep preaching. Uh, a 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase, whether it be black or brown and whether it have two, three or four drawers. Great, right? Of course it's four drawers, of course. Uh, let me skip a couple. These are all just fantastic. There was a big church argument over the discovery that the budget was out by 10 cents. Bruce's eyes twitching. A big dispute that because the Lord's Supper or Communion uh, had a cranberry and grape juice, not just grape juice, which obviously Jesus just used grape juice, so... It's in Hezekiah. Uh, there was an argument over whether or not to have gluten-free bread for communion. And Mountains Church people, if you know, you know, right? <laughs> We've been having that argument since before I was even the pastor there. Uh, this is one of my personal favourites. There was an argument over whether they were allowed to bring deviled eggs to the potluck dinner. Of course, but the best part was there was also an argument that it shouldn't be called pot luck, but instead should be called pot blessing. (laughs) 
And uh, last one, there was a dispute over whether people should be allowed to wear black T-shirts because it was the colour of the devil, which I always thought was red. So you learn something new every day. I'm pretty sure he's red. I've seen cartoons. So there's, a, there's these funny things that churches fight over, isn't there? And of course, there's not funny things that churches fight over too. But I thought, you know, it'd be a great way to kind of break the ice with that one. Uh, but I want to talk about why the, the unity in the church is different to unity everywhere else. And uh, my first point here is that unity is gifted in the church. It's gifted. It's a gift. Now, I am talking about church unity here. I mean, there's lots of other groups of unity, right? There is, um, you know, once every four years or three years or whatever it is, we, we, uh, we vote for a new prime minister. Or, or a new political party. And of course, there's different groups that are united behind one person or a different person. There's uh, different gyms you go to and, and they're this kind of united group that are all going together and, they, and if it's a good gym, they've got your back and they encourage you and make sure you're doing everything right and they help you along your fitness journey and it's great. There's this nice unity that's going on. There's lots of different interest groups. Uh, who here watched the Olympics? We were all united behind our Aussies. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Right? Like we were excited. I mean, once every four years, we, we really unite behind those Aussies and then don't care what they do for the next three and a half years or whatever. In truth, there are all sorts of things and causes and, and groups and whatever it is that you can unite behind. People can be united on. But the church is very different. It's incredibly unique. And the reason why it's incredibly unique is because we don't find something to be united behind and we don't look for something that connects us. God is what connects us. It's not this big physical thing or this, this big physical difference. I'm not looking for someone with the same skin colour or age group or suburb to live in or, I mean, you name it. I'm not looking for that. I mean, we're, just, we're, just, we're all one because the Father made sure that we would be one. Uh, you know, j- just over a year ago, our whole city uh, in Penrith united. It was really cool. I mean, obviously last year and of course this year as well, uh, just bad years, uh, lots of unfun stuff. Uh, but one really cool thing was when you would drive through Penrith and you would see businesses, homes, cars supporting the Panthers. And just over a year ago, the whole city was united in disappointment as we lost the grand final. But it was cool because it was like this thing, like we're all having this shared experience. We're all in lockdown. We're all in, you know, it's, it sucks. And, but there is this shared thing that we all knew we were rooting for the Panthers. And then, of course, earlier this month, the Panthers pulled through. We got the grand final win. And a week later, I go for a walk around the river because I, I was just catching up with a mate before work. We were doing a walk around the river. And as we're walking, literally the whole entire like 8K loop, whatever it is, 7Ks, there was chalk everywhere about go the Panthers, you got this Panthers. As you walk across the freeway bridge on the M4, there's every single number and every player's name all the way along the thing. I mean, somebody was dedicated. They... they they went a long way to doing this. There's this business right, right near where I live that the whole wall is painted in Panthers colours. As I drive to work, I see it every day. I mean, it, it's cool because there's this group that unites together, but the church is different. We don't unite together because there's, there's, this, there's this physical thing, that the fact that we all happen to live in the city where this team's doing really well. 
the thing that unites us is our gift from God. It's very important that our unity is never created by the congregation or the believers of a church. We never create the unity. It's not like we can force it. If, if a church tries to create unity, it actually goes against the unity of God because it tries to find lines in order to, to unite people in. But, but the truth is, I mean, we're, we're diverse, aren't we? It's purely a gift from God. And Jesus prays four times that God would give us this gift. All we have to do is receive it. And we nurture it. We, we care for it. We care for our unity. We make sure that it stays intact. We grow it. Our unity grows as, as we grow and mature as disciples, but we never created it. You know, the definition of, of unity is the coming together for a common purpose or action. That's not really how you would describe the church's unity. I mean, we, we do come together for common purpose and common action, but we, we come together because we have someone in common, and that's Jesus, and He connects us all. I mean, that is the starting point of the unity of the church. It's never been that we agree on political matters or, or on where we live or whatever it is. It's always been the fact that we all have Jesus. The second thing is this. The first one, unity is, a, is gifted. The second one, unity embraces diversity. You know, I, I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact that the, the more different people are in a group, probably the, the less unified they would be. But the church is paradoxical in the sense that the more diverse the group, the more that God's unity is present. It's incredible. I mean, that. It, it, it's joined man and, and woman. It's joined, uh, it's joined young and it's joined old. It's joined racist and racial activist. It's joined uh, smoker or non-smoker. It's joined crossfitter and people that are stupid. Like it's joined everybody. Even vegans. I think. You know... Jokes aside, it's joined everyone. I mean, it does not matter what your background is, where you're from, what your social status is, what your bank account looks like, what you look like. It really doesn't matter. And the church is the only group that everyone is invited. We are the only united group that anybody can come to. And it literally does not matter who you are or what you've done. Isn't that incredible? But there is a big difference, and the Bible teaches this, that there is a big difference between diversity and division. You know, the Holy Spirit, when He first fell on the disciples, they all began speaking in different tongues. I mean, it's, it's like the first move of the church was to include other people. Isn't that powerful? I mean, before that, the promise of God was for the Israelites. It was for the world. It really was. When you look at the Old Testament, the Israelites were meant to be the ones that brought God to the world. But anyway, uh, and so when Jesus comes, He fulfills that. And, and the first thing that happens when He leaves, the first thing that happens when the Holy Spirit empowers them, is they begin speaking in other tongues. It became for everybody. You know, we have Paul, the, the, the apostle, and he was the apostle to the Gentiles. I mean, what a, what a strange thought. 
they could be an apostle to the Gentiles? Like, what a strange idea. I mean, Paul is there telling Peter off because he's not sitting with, with just anyone. He's just sitting with the Jews. Is it, I mean, church really was just for everyone. And it was still hard for them to grasp back then. Think about uh, Galatians 3, verse 27 and 29. For as many of you as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's like he's read the prayer that Jesus prayed. You are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, Dad and I were having a a chat before the service this morning and uh, he pointed out that we are the only group or organisation in New South Wales that can have vaccinated and non-vaccinated people in the room together. There is no lines in the church. I mean, it, there is no lines as to, as to who you are or, or what you choose or political opinion or anything. And the church fought for this because they know that that's what it means. That's what it meant when Jesus said, hey, that they would all be one, that it's inclusive for everyone. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, another, speech impediment, in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. You know, Paul knew that it was important that there be no divisions. You know how, uh, you know, they struggled with the whole, um, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, and some I follow Jesus. And so there's this, there's this kind of, well, we're part of this part of the church. Or we're part of this part of the church. Our part of the church is more genuine or more legitimate. And, and you think, oh, that's just crazy. They're stupid. But then you think about, well, what about the Baptist church down the road? They follow the Baptists, but they're weird. The, the, the big difference between the Baptists and the Pentecostals is that the Baptists have learned to make fun of themselves. We still... We still take ourselves a bit too seriously. That list of 20 things that the United Churches have argued about, that was a Baptist list. Some of you are like, not surprised. <laughs> but we're all one. I mean, I mean the, the Baptists and the Anglicans, and, and I mean, you, you name it, we're all one. We might, we might think slightly different things, but hey, the church is diverse. It's not divisive. Number three. And I want to spend just a little bit of time on this one. I know I don't have heaps on, but unity strengthens. Unity strengthens over time. I got this quote that I found online. It says, Unity grows when it is stretched, pressured, or even threatened. You know, when I prayed a, about a month ago, I was praying and it looked like things were looking up and, uh, you know, we might be able to come out of lockdown soon and the church would meet together soon. And so I was praying very intentionally about our church, Mountains Church um, specifically. And I said, God, would you just give me an insight into what you're doing with your church? Because I don't know when I can't plan and I'm frustrated, Right. I don't know if you felt like that at all over the past four months, but yeah, that's been me a lot. And, uh, and God just replied in big capital letters, strengthening. Strengthening. And then he showed me this picture. And it was just like the dry bones that we find in Ezekiel that are coming back to life. And, and the sinew 
and the ligaments and the joints were all coming together. And God said to me, unity that I give is the ligaments and the joints and you are the body. Isn't that powerful? You know, Paul tells us that we are all different parts of the same body, right? Some of us better looking parts than others. I'm probably an armpit. But we're all different parts of the same body. And But what, what joins us together? It's God. It's always been God. As I said, you know, my, my first point, that unity is gifted to us. It's never been about something that we particularly share. It's, it's not even technically a shared experience. It's just the fact that God connects us. And can I tell you, church, I, I really believe to prophesy this over you this morning, that the church is in a place of strength, not weakness. We have never been in a place of weakness this whole time. And the whole entire way through lockdown, God has been strengthening His church, not weakening His church. And God has been strengthening the unity bond between its believers, not weakening the unity bond between its believers. And I really believe the enemy will want you to believe that because there is these divisions in society about everything, I mean, you name it, there's a division in society. I like Tim Tams. I'm sure someone's got a problem with that. Silly, skinny people. (laughs) While all of that is going on, God has been strengthening His church. And the enemy would want you to believe that because of all these divisions, there's so much division within the church. Hey, don't believe that lie. We love each other. We disagree a lot. Sure we do, but we love each other. And we choose each other first. And the only way something grows is if it encounters resistance. During lockdown, I, um, I found out such an interesting fact about your, your health and fitness, that if you eat whatever you want for four months, you get fat. <laughs> Who would have thought? I put on about 12 kilos. I know, right? It's impressive. 12 kilos. And, uh, and then Dave Dub P was like, hey, man, you want to come do this thing with me and lose some weight? And I was like, oh, yeah, this sounds good. He was probably just seeing the stomach just slowly do this. He's got to, oh, I've got to help a brother out. And so I lost those 12 kilos, praise the Lord. But let me tell you, it doesn't come without resistance. There's a lot of pushing and pulling and running and jumping and, and all of that kind of stuff in order to grow something. It's the same with the unity that exists between us. There's so much pushing and pulling and jumping and running going on between our you know, different divisions of society. More than ever, and it's probably because we spend more time on social media than ever, but we all can't quit it for whatever reason. And so at this time when there's so much of this going on, God's been strengthening. Every time you feel your buttons getting pushed, God's strengthening that unity that, that belongs between believers. You know, sometimes I think we, uh, if the band want to come on out, please, thank you. If, if sometimes I think we think of the fact that Jesus prayed for uh, unity. He prayed for it four times. This is the most significant prayer of Jesus in the Bible that we have. And, and he prays for unity. It's really just kind of the pinnacle of his message that we kind of think if we see anything other than perfect agreement, 
we've disappointed him. And I felt like that too. But I think Jesus prayed because he knew that we disagree a lot. Think about it. He's got 12 guys, all from the same race, around the same age, same growing up experience, taught the same things as children, has the same teachers, and they disagreed a lot. There was fights a lot. There was arguments, there was bickering. There's, there's some saying, well, can I sit at your right hand and I can, can I sit at your left hand and, and, uh, and who's the greatest disciple? And I'd never betray you, but this guy over here. There's this going on between his disciples. And I mean, you, you probably couldn't pick 12 guys more alike. And Jesus knows that He's sending this to the world, different cultures and backgrounds and social statuses. And I mean, you name it. And so He prays His prayer. God, would you just make them one as we are one? Would you just make them perfectly one? And what does He say will happen? That all the world will know. You know, just like bodies grow when they encounter resistance and they grow and they strengthen and, and they get better. So too does the church. Boy, we've encountered some resistance the last 18 months, haven't we? But we're growing. Growing pains. They're never fun. But they're important. Let me tell you, church, we're in a place of strength. Hey, Mountains Church, we, we don't know where we're meeting. We don't know when we're meeting. I wish I knew. I'm going to continue to look into it. But man, my faith is just so full. My faith is so full knowing that God knows, that He's strengthening, that Mountains Church is in a place of strength more than it is in a place of weakness, that Hawkesbury and Penrith Churches are in a place of strength more than weakness, that Cambodia is in a place of extreme strength. He's strengthening. Remember what Paul said, in our weakness, His strength is perfected. You know, I want to encourage you, church. We're going to finish with a, uh, a song with these guys just so that we can really declare, hey, you've done it before and you'll do it again. Because the truth is, He's, he's the ligaments, the sinew, the connections that connect us together. And I want to encourage you, church, and live stream, we're about to say goodbye, that God has been strengthening you and us all along. Walk in a place of strength. Walk with your head held high and your chest puffed out because God has got you right where He wants you. Amen. Well, thank you, Livestream. Thanks for joining in. Hey, we're so keen to see you soon. And uh, God bless you. See you, next, see you soon.